0: We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening.
1: Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate.
2: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this
3: door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1995's 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam, written by David and Janet Peoples, and starring Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt. Here's a clip from 12 Monkeys.
4: You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface
3: of the Earth.
1: No license, no prints, no warrants. But he
2: took on five cops like he was dusted to the eyeballs. What year is this?
4: What year do you think it is?
2: 1996.
4: That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future?
2: I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus.
1: We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill, For all I know you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys?
4: He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't
2: become addicted to that dying world? No, sir.
4: He needs help. I
2: think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're yeah, here because of the system, I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son.
1: You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact
4: science. You had a bullet from World War I in your leg, James. How did it get there? I
2: don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be
1: unknown. I can help you. Get you out.
2: monkeys. The thing mutates! We live underground! They're watching you. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet.
3: All right, that was a clip from 1995's 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam. Uh, Joining us today as a special guest is writer, film critic, and journalist uh, based out of Philadelphia, Stephen Silver. Say hello, Stephen.
5: Hello. Thanks so much for having me on. (laughs) Uh,
3: So one of the first things that we always do uh, at the beginning of the podcast is ask why this movie was chosen. Ricky, you chose 12 Monkeys, so why did you choose it? Hey, Patrick.
0: Hey, Stephen. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: The reason why I chose the
0: movie, Patrick, is
3: because the movie
0: is actually celebrating its 25-year anniversary in December, and so originally we had planned to do this episode at the end of the year, but given the current COVID-19 pandemic, I wanted to go back and watch some movies, and the thing about this movie is I kind of felt it was the best choice for me personally because I've been sick for two weeks, which is not helping my situation. I'm super stressed out, but I tried to watch Contagion. And it's a really, really good movie. I've seen it in the past and I couldn't get through it because it's just, it's too heavy. It's too dark. It's too, you know what I mean? It's just, it's not going to make you feel better. The thing about 12 Monkeys though, is that it does take place in a dystopian future. And there was a, a, a pandemic, of virus that was unleashed and, and killed about 5 billion people on the planet. I think 99% of the, of the earth's uh, human population, but it's not really about that. It's really a time travel movie. And about two weeks ago, we discussed Brazil, Terry Gilliam's Brazil on the podcast. And during that episode, I believe I said that I think 12 Monkeys is a better movie and it's my favorite film from the director. But the weird thing, Patrick, is that watching 12 Monkeys again this week, which I watched it twice, by the way, and I've seen it plenty of times in the past. I still think it's my favorite movie from the director but now i take it back i don't think it's a better movie than brazil i think it's a fantastic film i think it's one of the best time travel movies ever made and there's so much i love about it there's very little i dislike about it but actually i think Brazil's a better film i just happen to like 12 monkeys better i don't know if that makes sense for you guys
3: it does for me uh i'm gonna be encouraged Complete agreement because i hadn't seen either one of those movies in quite a while and so after watching brazil i was kind of invigorated watching brazil just from a filmmaking standpoint i love the first half of that movie so much that uh, you know it was it was inspiring in many ways um 12 monkeys i always considered to be more of a mainstream gilliam movie like it was one that was more audience friendly and i thought okay it, it, i remember liking it more at the time and you know liking it more a few years back when i last saw it uh but yeah i'm totally in total agreement that i think that Brazil is the better film and the more imaginative film. Um, 12 Monkeys is very good. It still is. A, it's a very audience friendly Gilliam movie, um, but it, uh, it, I, I have a couple of issues with it. I may not be as high on it as you are, but I, I do still think it is a really good time travel movie and just kind of a really good, like bending reality kind of movie. Um, the whole Cassandra thing, which we'll get into later on.
0: Can I just say something really quick? You say it's audience-friendly, and I think you're right. Like In retrospect, when we look back on it, people tend to love this movie. Like It finds a new audience year after year, like younger viewers, right? But when they had the initial test screening, apparently it was a complete disaster. Everyone at the test screening hated the movie, which once again proves that test screenings are a waste of time. But thankfully... Thankfully, Terry Gilliam had Final Cut because the deal was if he could keep it within budget, which which was $30 million, then he can have Final Cut. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I do think it's not as visually compelling or ambitious as Brazil. I also do not think it's as emotionally gripping as The Fisher King, which I still think might be his best movie. But regardless i think it's a, a work of genius in some respects and 25 years later i think it still holds up steven what about you
5: well if we're looking at um terry gilliam's best film are we counting monty python and the holy grail because he co-directed that with terry jones i don't know if we're counting that as a gilliam film because it's kind of more of a monty python film than a terry gilliam auteur sort of film um and uh, for counting uh, holy grail I would to that as my favorite um i I haven't seen Brazil in a really long time, so I can't. I don't know if I can speak to how much I like it compared to Twelve Monkeys. I think Twelve Monkeys is close to the top of the list in terms of Gillian. bad, and uh, The Fisher King, I would say. And uh, and I like *Fear and Loathing* in Las Vegas. I know everybody. I know it was a notorious flop, and nobody really liked it when it came out. But it's kind of been reappraised over time, and I think I think that that's a fine film. But uh, yeah, I'm, i I just watched uh, Twelve Monkeys again, and I thought um, it's. I think it holds up. I think um, it's uh, as good as it was, uh, you know, the various other times I've seen it over the years. Um, I think that uh, obviously, you know, with coronavirus going on, a movie about a pandemic virus is going to hit you a certain way that it might not have otherwise. Um, Now, one thing about this film is it is is shot mostly in Philadelphia and I live uh, near Philadelphia. Um, I didn't live in Philadelphia when I first saw the movie. I've lived here for about 15 years and you know, the movie's 25 years old. Um, it, it made really good use of Philadelphia locations, including some, you know, non-traditional locations, especially since they're doing subterranean stuff, uh, so often. Um, there's a place called the Eastern state penitentiary, which is an old prison, which has since kind of been reappropriated to be like a Halloween attraction. And, uh, that's what they used for. I don't remember exactly which scenes, um, cause you can, it doesn't really look the same in the movie as it does in real life. But, um, and then there's a place called Memorial Hall, which was like this uh, decaying building. And that I think is what they used for the mental institution. Uh, or no, that's what they used for the lecture hall, rather. Um, and they refurbished that about 15 years ago into a children's museum where my sister in law got married, which is kind of funny. Oh,
4: man. So,
5: and the other thing is that um, anytime. Uh, Animal, large animals get loose in Philadelphia, which happens more often than you think it would. Like, <laughs> year. like one time llamas got loose and were running around the city for a whole afternoon, and there's a horse one time. Like, this happens very often in Philadelphia, and uh, every single time they make the same joke that the army of the 12 monkeys is back and that they must have buttered all the animals out of the zoo. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> I did yeah. not know that. Yeah.
3: That's hilarious.
0: Um, have you guys seen the short film? Because for anyone who doesn't know, the initial inspiration for 12 Monkeys came from Chris Marker's experimental masterpiece, I think, La Jetée. Uh, it's a landmark 1962 French New Wave film. I think it's about 27, 28 minutes long. And the story goes that the producer, Robert Cosberg, was a huge fan of the film. And so he convinced Chris Marker to let him pitched the idea to Universal Studios so they can buy the rights to the film and therefore make, uh, remake it into a full-length feature science fiction thriller. But the thing is it's not really a remake. Like I really do feel like it's inspired clearly by Jete, but there's there's so like I mean first of all Jete really for anyone who doesn't know the whole entire film is composed of photographs. So it's still images. And the movie itself, it it is about a young man and it does take place in in a post-apocalyptic setting. And so this young man is obsessed with a specific image, this eerie image from the past. And he's not entirely sure if it's a dream or reality, but, the screenplay writers here who are famous for working on blade runner prior to 12 monkeys they kind of took that short film and i think that and patrick this is why i'm going to turn it over to you i think that they delivered one of the best screenplays of of that year if not that decade i, I think this is a, a solid solid script
3: yeah it is a good script uh if there's one thing david webb peoples uh, and i know that he, he co-wrote this with Jana peoples as well he's a uh <laughs> He's kind of a really big hit or a really big miss writer. I feel like, um, you know, he, he co-wrote Blade Runner and also he wrote Unforgiven, but he's yeah. also written things like Kurt Russell at Soldier, um, you know, in an attempt to have somebody speak yeah. as little dialogue as possible. He, one thing he always does really well, even if I don't think that his dialogue is necessarily the most interesting, he has structures his screenplays impeccably and i think this is just another example of that because you could take issue with blade runner screenplay as far as the dialogue goes uh a lot of it but the structure of it really really works and it's the same thing with unforgiven uh even though i do actually like the dialogue quite a bit in that movie mm. um but yeah this this thing is structured just perfectly so that you even if the dialogue doesn't always grab you the 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 way that it's delivered and when it's delivered is so flawless. I feel like that that uh, makes the impact at the end perfect.
0: Do you guys think that Terry Gilliam works better when he's directing a movie in which he didn't write the screenplay? Because, like for example, like I t- I think that um, uh, the Fisher King is one of his best movies, if not his best, and Twelve Monkeys is is a great movie. And from what I've read and from the documentary that's floating on YouTube, he didn't really have many problems in making the movie. Because I think when he writes the screenplay, because he obsesses over everything, right? There's that whole joke about how they... Um, I forget what the line was. They, they would refer to him as like the hamster. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No? No? Okay, well, there's a specific scene in 12 Monkeys where it took them an entire day to shoot the scene only because he wanted the hamster in the scene, which you can barely see because it's in the background. He wanted the hamster to react in a certain way that would parallel Bruce Willis's character, uh, Cole, that would parallel his reaction. And so they spent the whole entire day shooting the scene over and over and over again just because of the hamster. But the point is, he didn't write the screenplay. He was given the screenplay. And I think he works better as a director when he's not directing his own script. But, like, let's face it, uh, we've seen plenty of time travel movies, and it's not easy making a time travel movie because there's always. Plot holes, like major plot holes and continuity errors, and but he he he, he managed along with the screenplay writers, they managed to create the self-contained story within hundred and thirty minutes, which is not bad because these days movies run about three hours, and I think it's pretty impressive watching it over and over again because you're seeing a, an interlinking set of jigsaw puzzles sprinkled with plenty of clues and hints, and there's like these amazing throwaway pieces like the cryptic message on the answering machine or the graffiti that you see on the wall, uh, the list of destinations in which the virus will hit. Like there's all these things when rewatching it again and again, it just, it all ties into like future, like, you know, you have something that you see in like the second scene or the third scene and it ties into what happens at the very end of the movie. And I, I, I love that. And watching it again, like, I mean, we could talk about like what it's all about and the problems with time travel and the paradox and all that crap. But I think that they really covered our tracks. Like, I I really do think there's very few plot holes. And it pretty much, in my eyes, makes
5: a lot of sense. And that's part of what a screenplay is. It isn't just the dialogue. It's also the structure. And that's really a hard thing to, you know, make heads or tails of and to actually have it make sense and have people not be confused and and all that stuff. And uh, I'm looking at David Webb Peoples' page, and uh, Soldier was the last screenplay he ever did that was produced. And Twelve Monkeys was the second to last.
3: Ah, uh, yeah, he has not done anything again. <laughs> I mean, he's
5: all—he's eighty years old now, so he might have yeah, been done yeah. at, at the at the time of of, of these movies, which is, which is certainly possible. But yeah, um, I agree. I think that um, yeah, the structure of it is wonderful, and um, La its its I mean, La Date was different in a lot of different ways between being much shorter and also it was a nuclear war. It wasn't a virus. It wasn't—you know—there were a lot of other just uh, things about it that were different. Right. 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 I mean, it is still, I guess it counts as an adapted screenplay just for that reason, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, different enough. Now, um, the performances in this movie, I thought that, um, Bruce Willis, if you've seen him lately, he hasn't been, uh, giving very good performances. I don't know if you saw, uh, Glass, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. He just was like basically sleepwalking, sleepwalking through that role, but, uh,
3: at this I feel like point everybody is, was comatose in that movie to a certain Yeah, extent. that was a
5: whole uh, lot. <laughs> yeah, he, um, I'm looking at, uh, Roger Hubert's review. He, uh, he, he quotes the line, uh, Cole lands in 1990 bruised, bleeding and dripping sweat and mucus from every pore. A large percentage of Bruce Willis's film career has been spent in this condition, which <laughs> is true of the, you know, the diehard movies where, you know, he's bloodied and sweaty for the entire movie. But, uh, yeah, he was wonderful in this, and Brad and Brad Pitt especially. I think, I think, I mean, everyone knows now what a what a what a fantastic actor Brad Pitt is, and he finally won an Oscar. But I think back in the early parts of his career, there was, I think, there were some who believed, you know, he's just this pretty boy guy who's a he might be he might be a movie star, but he we don't know how talented he is. Um, but this movie, he was just fantastic. Okay, yeah, but
0: here's the thing about Bruce Willis, like. I always view this movie as a film about madness and dreams. It's set in this chemically engineered apocalypse, but you have this hero who isn't really a hero. Like he cast Bruce Willis at the time and still is an action Hollywood star, right? He's known for movies like Die Hard. But in this movie, like most protagonists in movies directed by Terry Gilliam, he's beaten down he's 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 mentally unstable he he's like he's running around and he's not even entirely sure if he's sane or if he's insane so like the movie creates this unsettling mood that i think we as viewers find ourselves in the same hallucinatory mind state has has the character James Cole, like when you're watching a movie, like it it has a lot to do with the visuals and the soundtrack and just his performance. Like, I mean, I would have to think about this, but it might be his best performance because he is a misunderstood hero, but he himself, he himself misunderstands himself. Like he's not entirely sure how to diagnose himself. Like there's, there's moments in a film where he thinks he is going insane. But the thing I love about this movie throughout the entire film, James Cole is trapped, right? And we see these parallels, in the past and present so he's either physically locked inside a prison like he's a prisoner in the present which is technically the future or in the past which at the time would have been the present from when the movie came out but he's put into a mental institution but he's also mentally trapped like he's a prisoner of his own mind and so throughout the film you know he has this reoccurring dream which involves a foot chase Uh, through the airport and he witnesses a shooting and there's a child at the airport so we we have this reoccurring dream and the dream persists throughout the story so he's not entirely sure what's real and what's not but at the same time when we get the climax when we do get the ending of the film we realize it's not a dream after all it's it's more or less like a nightmare in the sense that james cole trapped himself in his own never-ending time loop so he's also trapped in a time loop so that, like, I just love the parallels between the past and the present and how they p- find a way to portray this man just trapped in every single which way possible. Look,
4: hey,
2: have any of you heard of the army of the 12 monkeys? They, they paint this, they stencil this on the sides of buildings everywhere. Have you seen this? Mr. Cole, have, have you seen this? Why don't you just take your time? and try to explain this whole thing from the beginning. Right, right, it's 1990. Okay, that makes sense. They wouldn't have been active yet, okay. Um. Okay.
3: Five billion
4: people died in
2: 1996 and 1997. Almost the entire population of the world. Only about 1% of us survived. Are you going to save us, Mr. Cole? How can I save you? This already happened. I can't save you. Nobody can. I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now, Mr. Cole? No. 1990 is the past. This already happened. That's what I'm trying to do. Mr. Cole? Mr. Cole? You believe 1996 is the present then, is that it? No, 1996 is the past too, listen to me. What I... What I... What I need to do is make a telephone call. I I can straighten this all out if I make a telephone call.
1: Who would you call? Who would straighten everything out?
2: The scientists. They'll want to know that they sent me to the wrong time. I can leave a voicemail message that they monitor from the present. Can I just make one telephone call, please? Please.
5: This is one of several movies with Bruce Willis where uh, he uh, comes into contact with his younger self. Uh, there was Looper. There was uh, that movie The movie The Kid. And then I think there was some other like, direct-to-view movie that I never saw. Like I, I looked this up and there were a list of several of these movies. Now, Looper is more in line with this with actually, you know, thinking about time travel paradoxes mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but,
3: uh, and I wonder like this movie is about time travel, but it does take a more fanciful Terry Gilliam like approach where it doesn't seem to be gritty reality of time travel. It is right. definitely fantasy. He doesn't get too bogged down in the details because Bruce Willis <clears throat> does do things. He does interact with the environment and, that could potentially cause change down the line. Right. Um, but that's never really considered a whole lot. They don't consider the time travel paradox very, very much, right. um, you know, because he kills people uh, in the past. And who knows what those people may have, you know, how that might have affected the future uh, or even his escape from the mental institution could have possibly affected things in some way. Uh, his interactions right. with Brad Pitt, who, of course, would his character would go on to at least be involved in uh, what, is, you know, the the, the important uh, Virus that, get, that gets uh, released. Even though he's not directly involved, his interactions with Pitt could have led to something down the line. Um, all sorts of things could happen. But Gillian doesn't get bogged down in that. For him, it is mostly about the mental side of things um, whether, <clears throat> whether or not somebody's actually going to be, you know, can trust what they remember or what they're even seeing as being real.
0: I find it funny how a lot of people misread the movie, or at least a lot of people I speak to, because they seem to think that Bruce Willis is sent back in time to save 5 billion people who were who died because of the virus. But that's not actually his mission. His mission is to be sent back in time to study the virus, get as much information as he can about the virus before it mutated, so they can uncover a cure for the, the present, which is really the future, right? So it's it's about them finding a cure so that the people in the present can return back to the surface of the earth because right now they're currently living underground. And so a lot of people think that he's there to save the 5 billion people that died, but he's not because it, it, they, they they clearly state it in the movie. It's not about changing the past. The past already happened. You can't change it. It's about making the future a better place. And I love that twist because most time travel movies, it is about changing the past. But if you change the past, therefore, the whole entire future changes. And that's where it gets complicated. And you have lots of plot holes and a lot of things just don't make sense. So I, 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 th- that is one thing I, I, I took away while watching it again. And and it's funny, Patrick, because we talked about this when watching Brazil. But la- when, when, when we were discussing Brazil, I kind of stated that I thought it was somewhat of a happy ending. And here I kind of feel like, well, it's not necessarily a happy ending, but it's not necessarily the worst ending possible because I think he does accomplish his mission at the end of the film. Yes, he dies and he might not know that he accomplishes his mission, but he technically does because... He, he, along with Madeline Stowe's character, they do finally pinpoint who Dr. Peters is. And it's most likely Dr. Peters who's spreading the virus because he's at the airport. And that is when Jose shows up and he makes the call to the future to advise them that the army of the 12 monkeys is not responsible. And what they were actually doing was they it was a big prank in which they released all of the animals from the zoo And they took Brad Pitt's character's dad, played by um, Christopher Plummer, right? And they locked him up in a cage. Because at the end of the movie, we do see the scientist from the future, whose name is Jones. And she's sitting in the airplane. In the airplane, she actually sits directly next to Dr. Peters, which cannot be coincidence
3: no, she's she's clearly there. Like there, there's, it's mission accomplished. Now I don't know. It's yeah. open to interpretation whether she prevents him from from releasing the virus into further areas. Keep in mind, he already released it in that airport because he yeah. uncorked his tubes, and you know, so it's it's already going to happen there. I always took it as yeah, it's all inevitable, and he's fulfilled yeah. his fate. You know, that was that was always going to happen. So he simply fulfilled that. And as far as saving saving the world, I always felt that Gilliam's visuals tell you that that was never going to happen when bruce Willis is first sent back this is a decaying dying city already he never shows clean parts of philadelphia it is
5: that's just what philadelphia looks like or look like in the 90s
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) but everything's dirty i the, the asylum is just this decrepit building, and, uh, you know, as they're walking through and the police officers are explaining how they found them, I mean, my God, it's like they're in something that's condemned. Or the entire place must be under construction because it's layered in such filth and old wood uh, that's just cracked and 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 falling apart. Like, the entire city looks like it's already dying, so you were never going to yeah. stop that.
5: There was a um, the movie a few years ago called The Signal. I don't know if anybody you saw that. It was kind of a, a minor extreme movie. It was which, which was sh- it was set mostly I guess it was a mental institution. they had the Philadelphia press drunket in the Eastern city Penitentiary where that part of Dalmokey was filmed because it looked like the location in the uh, in the uh, movie yeah I've seen that movie
0: I, I really like that movie yeah it's a, not a bad movie um so so there, the, the thing is like with all time travel movies it does kind of make you like think and sometimes your brain starts hurting trying to think about like wait a minute like how does this all connect and what actually changed because the thing is like he does travel to like the wrong time, starting with nineteen ninety. It was start. It started with nineteen ninety, right? And then later nineteen ninety six. But he also traveled to like World War One, and so Madeline Stowe's character, she is writing a book, and so she's writing a book about these doomsday prophets, which. A lot of them were these time travelers, these prisoners from the future that are sent back to the past, but accidentally sent back to the wrong year because they are sent to get information on the virus. But in doing so, they become like these doomsday prophets because they know what's going to happen in the future. And therefore, she's writing this book about the doomsday prophets. But because of the book that she writes, it's her book that gives Dr. Peters the very idea that it is possible to to unleash a deadly virus to kill off the human race and that would be better for for the earth because we are you know we are contaminating the planet and so like but the thing is like she only writes the book because they get sent back to the past but this only happens in the future which hasn't actually happened yet so like there's things like that like you know what I mean That's like whoa wait a minute but i think at the end of the day like i think that obviously the the virus was unleashed you know was it dr peters or someone else it was most likely dr peters regardless if he read the book or didn't read the book i think the point is that it would have happened
5: regardless right right well i heard one theory which was that uh in 1990 bruce lois meets brad pitt in the mental institution and tells him about the virus that wipes out humanity in the future and brad pitt might have mentioned it to his father's assistant and that's where he got the idea i mean the film does not make that clear that that happened but it's a theory that
3: it happened yeah it seems like david morse's character dr Peters. by the way i always want to give a shout out to david morse because yes. he's one of those guys is such an understated small role but man did they get the right casting for like oh, yeah. the creepiness um although i met mom- him one
5: time he's, he's 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 very tall he's he's taller than you think i know i guess there's no oh, point he, where you could see
3: that but uh he's uh, he looks like a big guy
5: he is a big guy he's like a uh i don't think he's from philadelphia but he's like i think he lives in philadelphia and he's in philadelphia he's on He was on that show called Hack, where he's an ex-cop who becomes a cab driver and solves crimes. And that was (laughs) a Philadelphia show. And he pops up in, in local productions occasionally, so...
3: That's a great premise. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I I think he definitely has, he builds enough of that character, even through just a few lines that he clearly has an agenda of his own. So I feel like he would have thought of this idea no matter what, that I don't know if he needed to be, you know, that this needed to be suggested to him because he seemed to have his own viewpoints on humanity and the world in general. And he clearly had been thinking about this for a long time And even reading her book, I'm not sure that it inspired him to do this, but it may have just sort of validated his own opinions on some of this stuff. And it it was curious to see the the scene where she kind of just blows him off completely and he walks away with a smile. I don't think he needed anything further at that point. It It didn't even seem to be vindictive or evil in any way. I think he thought that he's a character who thinks he's doing the right thing.
5: I love that little moment in her book signing where um you know they're all trying to get autographs and he's like pontificating about you know his theories about the virus and then another guy comes up and goes perhaps you've heard of my research and then it cuts out <laughs> that's such that's such a like academic book signing thing that happens where
0: a lot of people pointed to that scene and they said that that, that line it wasn't just a, a throwaway line it was to kind of like have people thinking that there's other people with the same similar ideas and they could also be responsible for, for unleashing the virus, at least originally, before Dr. Peters does. Because Dr. Pe- Peters only actually does it because of, of them sending prisoners back in time like Bruce Willis's character Cole. I mean, it's, it's little things like that. Like, it could be there. Like, that specific line of dialogue could be there for a specific reason for all we know. Um, does anyone else think that Terry Gilliam hates his... Leading men, his protagonist, because it seems like in every single one of his movies, the hero—and I'm using hero in quotes here—they um, suffer. Like, like, like they're they're put in the middle of a big picture conspiracy. The entire world is falling apart around them. No matter what they do, everything goes wrong, and the characters are 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 like are falling apart mentally, physically, and spiritually. Like, I think madness is a trait of many of the main characters in almost all of his films like like michael Pal- uh, palin in jabberwocky or jonathan price in brazil um jeff bridges in the fisher king and here we have um bruce willis who in 12 monkeys um who spends most of his time let's face it he's either locked up he's running around naked he's naked and locked up he's confused he's exhausted he's going insane he's not sure if he's going insane um, so yeah, it's just like, man, if you're gonna, if you're gonna star in a film directed by Terry Gilliam, man, you're gonna go, you're, it's gonna be, it's not gonna be an easy shoot. That's all I'm gonna say.
5: Did you see his Don Keo movie? Yes. That, that finally came, I mean, he tried to make it, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago and it fell apart and he finally did it again. I thought it was not bad, but yeah, that, that, that your thesis would apply to that as well, you know, he's, uh, I don't know, I think Gilliam's sort of, uh, attracted to that sort of story or that sort of leading my list.
3: I think he finds both the comedy and the tragedy that seems to be yeah, his yeah. whole deal. Uh, and you know, start even going back to the Monty Python days. I think the craziness just, it, it appeals to him overall, even in his lesser movies. What did we bring up? Uh, the brothers grim, <laughs> there's still the madness in, in that movie where everybody, you know, again, nobody knows what to believe or what to trust. And one of the younger brothers is kind of slowly unraveling. Uh, and the older brother starts to unravel because of that. Um, yeah, he, he must just absolutely love that. Now we had we had brought up in Brazil how he doesn't necessarily uh, do well with his female characters, but I would beg to differ in this movie. I find Madeline Stowe's character to be the grounding uh, element of this entire movie that keeps it from spinning off into this, you know, into the, out into outer space because she's she's super important. She somehow finds that balance between uh, re- a- a- providing an actual uh, grounded reaction to all the craziness that's happening around her.
0: And I think she was the one actor in the film who was cast. Like he knew, he knew right away he wanted her in the film and he cast her. Whereas with Bruce Willis, he was unsure. Initially he wanted Jeff Bridges. He wasn't really entirely sold on Brad Pitt. Uh, And it's, he's actually lucky he got Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis. Like Bruce Willis was already a huge star, but like when they were filming this movie, Brad Pitt wasn't as big yet because, yeah, Legends of the Fall and uh, Thelma and Louise had come out, I believe, but that was only after they were filming the movie so when when Brad Pitt showed up on set he wasn't yet the Brad Pitt that we know but going back to Bruce Willis once again cuz i have to praise his performance like again he's so good and we as viewers we sympathize with his character but the thing is we want him to succeed we want him to like save the world or 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 uh, you know not die at the end of the film and and also not be crazy but the irony is that for us to root for Cole That means he is healthy and and not insane, which means that the planet will suffer because the virus will be released and 5 billion people will die. And so it's like you want to root for him at the same time you realize that if you root for him, that means all of these terrible things are going to happen, especially because his mission isn't to save those people. His mission is just to get information on the virus. And I, I just like I, I that man, I find I find this movie so fascinating, like just sitting here talking to you guys about it. Like, I mean, I just watch it twice this week. And again, maybe not as good of a movie as Brazil, but I would argue that, like, especially towards the end, I find the ending so emotionally rewarding. And the one thing that always sticks out each and every single time I watch this movie is the soundtrack. It's the musical score. It's the first thing you you hear, like you you get the opening text, which uh, is a quote from um, is it a quote from Doctor Peters? I think so. Anyhow, you get the opening text, and right away you the music kicks in. So, Stephen, I don't know if you're aware, but on the last podcast when we discussed Brazil, one of my major problems with Brazil is is the sound design and and the and the score because I thought it overpowers the movie and it just gave me a huge headache by the time the two and a half hour movie was over. And here it's completely the opposite. I think this is one of the best musical scores for any movie of that decade, and probably the best musical score ever applied to uh, a film directed by Terry Gilliam. And it has this like weird French, Argentine entangle to it. Like, I mean, okay, so like the actual um, composer is British. That's Paul Buckmaster, but they use like the main theme is a, a song from Argentina. And so it's like, it has like this tangled vibe to it. And, and it, it just, it stands out and I never feel like it's distracting, but you hear it throughout the entire film. So it becomes the theme of the film. And whenever you hear that music, like, you know, you know, right away, you're watching 12 monkeys, just like if you hear the star Wars, uh, theme song or the Superman theme song, you know, where it came from. And that's, 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 that's not like something that comes, uh, comes around very often when watching these sort of like movies by directors like Terry Gill. I mean, usually you get that with like big Hollywood blockbuster films.
5: Yeah. This is one of those movies where when I think of the movie, like one of the first things I think of is the music. Like I'll, I'll get the song in my head. When the doo 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 doo. -doo -doo, Once I, if I hear 12 monkeys, that's what I think of first. (laughs)
3: You know, what's funny is I'm the complete opposite with this score. I uh, As I was watching it, it was distracting, and I was going to list that as one of the things that I would change. I do not like this score at all, and I hate the use of that tango. I hate it. Um, but, <laughs> but it's a minor quibble, because whatever, it, it blows over and it's breezy enough. But it, to me, it is distracting kind of in the same way that it was distracting for you in Brazil. But... You know, <laughs> different tastes.
0: Oh, wow. I That's love just it. how
3: I reacted. There's a couple of things actually in this that I, that we'll get around to later. Then um, notice there's one performance I haven't been talking about at all because I really do believe that Stowe's, that Willis's great performance isn't possible without Stowe's counterbalancing him. Um, but there's other, another performance in this movie that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, seeing as how I, he was, I believe he was nominated for an Academy Award for this, that I'm not as high on, uh, as i was back when i first saw this movie hey look here this here's
4: james now do me a favor why don't you show him around tell me tv rules show
3: me games and stuff okay
1: how much are you gonna pay me how much i'd be doing your job five thousand dollars my man that enough five thousand i'll wire a check to your account as usual five thousand dollars five thousand dollars five thousand dollars i'll give him the deluxe mental hospital treat my man uh. Get around, get around, it make <laughs> them feel good. We're yeah, good. Know, We're you. You're the prisoners. No, no you're no, the guards. No, no, no. Now you're you got it, now you right, got it. Right, right. it. Okay, okay, it's all in good fun, all in good Here's some games here, and
4: there's... Get out! Get out! <laughs> get out! <laughs> and...
1: He's in my chair. Games, games. Here's some games. Games that want to get out. <laughs> See? More games games, they vegetize you. See? Yeah. If you play the games, you're voluntarily taking a tranquilizer. Uh, I guess they give you some chemical strengths, huh? Drugs! What did they give you? Dorsing? Haldol? How, How much? How much? Learn your drugs. Know your doses. It's elementary. I you can make a telephone call. A telephone call? A telephone, call? A telephone call? That's communication with the outside world. Doctors. Discretion. Ah. Uh, nah. Uh, hey. all of these nuts could just make phone calls, they could spread insanity. Using through telephone cables oozing to the ears of all these poor, sane people, infecting them. Whackos everywhere, plague of madness. Come on, let's go. In fact, very few of of us here are actually mentally ill. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're (coughs) crazy as a loon. But that's not why you're here. That's not why you're here. That's not why you're here.
3: I think one of the things that we haven't completely got into, we've touched on it, is, uh, of course, what Terry Gilliam brings uh, visually to his movies, which is kind of his trademark. And you see a lot of uh, some of the the tropes that he uh, has used in the past. Of course, there's the the machinery, his funky steampunk, uh, Steampunk, uh, anachronistic machinery, which is – uh, it's in full force in the future shots here and just stuff that you have no idea what it does or how it works or it never really needs to have a practical function in a Terry Gilliam movie. I feel like it just needs to look weird and sort of, you sort of have an idea that it might, what of what it might be doing very industrial uh, kind of stuff. N- never even, even like the, the televisions floating around the screens floating around in front of Bruce Willis's face look like they could have come out of the 1800s instead of, you know, yeah. the two thousands. Um, so, What do you guys think of this? I feel like this is a little bit toned down. Again, what goes back to my audience-friendly thing. This is Gilliam, like, sort of restraining himself. Um, But what do you guys think of the visuals of this?
0: So I don't know if you watched the documentary, but he hired the set decorator, uh, Crispian Salas, uh, who's just, you know, he's just like a legend in the industry. And what he wanted him to do was he wanted him to sort of uh, use a variety of items like everyday items and from different eras from like you know the renaissance era from victorian age era like whatever from world war ii and the 50s the 60s the 70s and he just wanted because because this is like a world like that is like where the people are forced to live underground there is this virus you can't uh, you know go above the surface uh so like he like basically like he wanted them to use whatever kind of scrap they can find to build whatever it is they need to build underground and so they would do things like they would take a vacuum cleaner and they would turn it into a flashlight and so i like that idea it's like it's because it makes sense right like if if this is a world where five billion people died and the human population is forced to go underground it can't be like this this beautiful like high-tech Uh, technology that they're using, be it the computers or even the the time travel machine itself. So I thought that was a really cool idea. And like you mentioned how they dial it back. Well, I think they kind of need to right? also the cinematography is incredible. Like I I think Robert Pratt does an amazing job. I was, I I sent you guys an article. It was like, you know, like 10 pages long about how he filmed the scene, uh, the film, the movie. And he was using, of course, like Terry Gilliam loves his wide angle lenses. He loves his Dutch angles just like brazil he makes a lot of the images look distorted there's a lot of off-kilter framing and there's a lot of close-ups of the main character and i think like those shots and the visual style really emphasizes cole's visions his his mental state the fact that he is the fact that he is confused the fact that um you know it feels like very claustrophobic as well cuz you do have a lot of tight shots he uses different kind of filters and i think like the thing is at the end of the day every single shot in this movie it mirrors what bruce willis's character cole is feeling inside i think and that comes from like the lenses that they choose to use i, I mean i was reading that uh, apparently they would they would take stockings and they would put it over the camera because it would just change the lighting just a bit. And like little like clever things like that. Like taking an, uh, an item like a stocking, putting it over the lens just to get a specific look that you want. And I mean, Steven, you're from Philadelphia. Like I thought the the actual sets were kind of like genius. Like especially the, the time travel set. Like the fact that it's this plastic tube like floating in mid-air and you see Bruce Willis inside the tube like he's he's butt naked and and also like uh the interrogation room like the engineer room uh the interrogation room is just like it's so bizarre it, it actually looks like it belongs in the world of Brazil like Patrick you mentioned the TV sets and even the TV sets themselves they look like TV sets from like the 50s or 60s and there's like 15 TV monitors and he's sitting on an aluminum chair. He's like strapped into the chair, and then the chair rises like twelve feet above the ground. And I, I don't know, man. Like I just love all that stuff. And I know he was sued apparently because they, um, they took a lot of inspiration from that famous architect. And I, I think later on they actually admitted <laughs> that they took inspiration from from his designs because, like, they kind of had to and give him credit, but. I mean, whatever. Like, it, it looks fantastic at the end of the day.
3: Yeah, it looks like... I mean, the interrogation room is great. I, I'm not really sure what purpose a lot of it serves. It's kind of like... I, I always think of Terry Gilliam's technology as, you know, being like a steam-powered toaster. It's just it so much work seems to go into it for so little effect. Um, but it it looks great it always looks great like the chair that goes high up on the wall so i mean i get it there's some practicality to that so these guys are the, the people in prison some of them are violent offenders in some cases and you don't want them to escape and possibly you know rush the scientists but at the same time you know they're telling their monster guards to wait outside um <laughs> and those guys i'm pretty sure could handle pretty much anything uh yeah it's just it's everything floating around is kind of funny it's like the screens they, they place him so far away from them they're interrogating him and now and that actually works because this is you know after a pandemic and people would perhaps want to stay away especially if somebody's been locked into prison could have multiple things going out with them like lice blah, blah blah although they're they seem like they're getting washed fairly regularly as well um yeah, it's just funny that they place themselves so far away, and then they use these television screens to get right up in his face. <laughs>
0: so... Yeah, but but the prison does look like a maze. Like they said that they when they said that when they designed the prison, they wanted like these human sized hamster cages, and you would have all of these cages. They they would place all of these cages on top of each other, but also like my, I think my favorite shot of the film is the um, it's the shot when it's like it's like an overhead shot, like a bird's eye view. Like it's like 30 feet up in the air and Bruce Willis is like in a small room. I think it's like right after he escapes the mental institution and he travels through time. Do you you know what I'm talking about? They call it the, um, the chimney shot. Like, I I think like they basically, I I don't know if they built a chimney or they placed him inside like a huge chimney and then they had this like beautiful overhead shot, like again, 30 feet away, just showing Bruce Willis who, and that's the scene in which he starts to question his sanity.
3: Yeah, and he clearly makes the the present day, the nineteen ninety-four or it was set in ninety-four, I think, right? Or ninety five. It was set in a couple of different years. Um
0: 96, 97 And nineteen ninety.
3: And nineteen ninety, right. Um yeah, so he, he makes that he shoots that in a completely different way than he shoots the the futuristic stuff, obviously. And that's where you see more of his fisheye lens lenses. Um are those called fennel lenses? I can't remember what that is exactly. Um I might be <laughs> mistaking that with the word fennel. It's something along those lines. Um, yeah, but he he clearly distorts a lot of the future, which also that that visual distortion is a good reason for Bruce Willis's character and for the audience to kind of believe that Bruce Willis's character might be imagining the future because it is so distorted and it might not be real versus all of the present day stuff, our present day stuff, which is shot in a very flat, like more normal, normal lenses uh normal lighting and obviously normal technology right he doesn't go crazy and turn turn 1996 into a fantasy land uh so it it, it's a good a good way of separating those two eras and keeping bruce willis's like recollection or his how he's perceiving those two eras completely distinct and it it lends credence to the fact that he starts to believe that the real world is 1996 and this fake world is the future where all this stuff happened.
0: You'll see this in a lot of movies where they will use a Dutch angle or a wide angle lens to distort an image, but there's no reason for it. It's just to make it look funky and cool. But here, thematically, it actually links to what the movie's about and his character. I, I also love the pop culture references throughout the film, like the Woody Woodpecker cartoon, or you see them watching a Marx Brothers film in the mental institution, which is called monkey business, which is how he, he comes up with the idea of 12 monkeys, like little things like that. Like, I know it's it's like you see it a lot in movies nowadays, but back then, it, I, don't, I don't remember, like, this is like, I guess, after Tarantino was like big, right? Um, but like, you guys know the story behind the vertical scene? The Alfred Hitchcock scene when they go to the movie theater and and, and the, the movie theater is playing like three Hitchcock movies back to back. So, well, basically La Jetée, like Chris Marker, the reason why he made La Jetée is because he uh, was actually watching Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And so Hitchcock's Vertigo actually influenced and inspired him to make La Jetée. So that's why in the film he adds the entire – he has that scene in which they go to the movie theater to watch the 24-hour Hitchcock marathon. And then, of course, she dresses up um, like – what's her face from from, – oh, my God. What is her name again? I'm forgetting her name. Sorry, guys. I'm sick. Um, Anyhow, you know what I'm talking about. So I just thought that was like a really cool, clever Easter egg.
3: Yeah, and Vertigo kind of plays in too, because that's also, you uh, know, Jimmy Stewart in that movie is a man questioning his, his own sanity and questioning what reality is. And uh, and that's also, uh, you know, a murder that he can't quite piece together, that he hasn't, that all the, the clues haven't actually uh, come to light yet as to, you know, what happened during that, that uh, early death in the film. So, yeah, it fits.
4: Kim, Kim Novak. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, that's what you're trying.
3: <laughs> I, I wasn't sure who you were trying to describe. Madeline Stowe, I was thinking. Or... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like really sick, but yeah, Kim
0: Novak. Um, So yeah, and I, I didn't, I didn't realize that until like about a few days ago, I was reading an interview with him and it just all made sense. I'm like, oh yeah.
3: Well, and she changes her look like Kim Novak changed her look in order yeah. to you know, uh, appease Jimmy Stewart's character in that movie. Yeah. There's a lot of weird little parallels uh, that happened I think that Woody Woodpecker thing uh, cartoon is actually about time travel as well. So there's a bunch of strange little things that uh, that he's thrown in that just sort of enrich the experience. And even if uh, even if you don't pick up on them consciously, you know, maybe subconsciously, they of help set the atmosphere. I think this is a good time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask our uh, our five questions uh, about Twelve Monkeys. Here's another clip from Twelve Monkeys.
4: I work for the county. I don't work for the police. So my concern is for your well-being. Do you understand that? Need to go. Need to go. I can't. I can't make the police let you go. But I do want to help you. So I. I need you to tell me exactly what happened tonight. Do you think you can do that, James? May I call you James?
2: James. Nobody ever calls me that.
4: Have you been a patient at County Have I seen you someplace?
2: Not possible. I need to go. I need
4: to... I'm supposed to be gathering information. What kind of information?
2: Won't help you. Won't help anyone. Won't change anything.
4: James, do you know why you're here?
2: Because I'm a good observer. I've a tough mind.
4: I see. You. You don't remember assaulting a police officer for several officers. Why are you chained?
2: Why are chains on me? Yeah.
4: You've been in an institution before, haven't you? A hospital. Oh, she's
1: now. Need James. to go. Need to go! He's in
4: prison, James? Underground. Hiding?
1: Oh, this air. Oh,
2: this is such wonderful air.
3: Okay, that was another clip from 12 Monkeys. Uh, now is the portion of the podcast where we sort of ask some questions. We kind of figure out what are our favorite parts of the movie, what are our least favorite parts of the movie that we might change, who's the MVP, stuff like that. Uh, we're going to kick it off. We always like to start with a positive. So, um, Stephen, what is your favorite scene in 12 Monkeys?
5: I think I'm going to go with... Um, my favorite is uh, Willis and Pitt at the Mental Institution, just that whole, that whole thing. It has a certain energy to it, especially you know Pitt with his crazy eyes and his uh his uh off-filter monologues uh that and the ending which just you know it brings everything together with the the stuff at the airport and you know we kind of see what's going to happen a little bit before it happens but i thought that was that was a
3: that was a good scene mm. I, I mean the ending is is what a payoff it's a great yeah. payoff to a time travel yeah. movie. yeah absolutely fantastic uh rick what about you what is your favorite scene
0: so I think it's actually the end of the movie, like the ending, because you have the the twist. But I'm not going to stick with that answer. What I'm actually going to say is I'm going to point to the scene in which they are driving and Bruce Willis turns on the radio. So Cole, his character, turns on the radio and he hears pop music. And it might be the very first time he hears music. We're not entirely sure, but... It's in that scene that you really see the human side of this character because throughout the film, like I said, he's deranged. He's walking around like a wild beast, like half naked, just like completely, like you know, just dazed and confused and and beaten and battered. And in that scene, we see like we see life in him, and and that is when they sort of like form a bond, like a real bond, and she sees like. I think she actually understands that this guy is not dangerous. He's actually like probably a good person. So that that scene to me is crucial, and I think it's a turning point of the film.
3: You totally stole my <laughs> my scene. I also think that's when he be, first starts to become seduced by uh, the nineteen ninety nineties, or I, I guess I, I guess at that point it was ninety six. yeah, the nineteen ninety six uh, reality. He starts to become seduced by the present day or the past, his past, mm. and would rather live in it than go back to his trashed future world which he he can then start to convince himself might not be reality because she's telling him that and I think he loves being back in the fresh air and there's music and all these things that, that there's pleasure in this world that is not in his um, so yeah I think that's that's kind of that's a very very pivotal scene uh, if I have to pick a secondary one I am going to pick uh, the scene where he, confronts brad pitt's character it's kind of a combination scene the scenery confronts brad pitt's, brad pitt's character at the party uh the fancy dinner party that his dad is throwing and then also the escape from that and getting back out to the car and when he actually in when he lets madeline still out of the trunk and then she finally like he disappears when they're about to turn themselves in uh that sure. whole sequence all the way through i think is pretty good
0: in that scene, towards the end, it sort of implies that he can be a danger to her, right? Because, because like, throughout the whole entire film, it's like they want you to sympathize with his character. But in that very specific moment, it seems like he's going to kill her.
3: Yes, mm. it does. And I think that's important. It also shows her fighting back, too. I, I think that's pretty important for her character. She is going along with this somewhat inexplicably to some people, I'm sure. They're like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Get away from this guy. But I think she is proactively making this choice because she is interested. She is fascinated by this guy, and she genuinely wants to help. But also, she does have a good amount of fight in her, too, um, because she goes on him <laughs> after that. All right, so now we get to the, the perhaps what could be the most interesting uh, question that we're going to ask about this. Stephen, if there was one thing that you could change about 12 Monkeys, what would it be?
5: I don't know. Well, I do think that um, if uh... – if the movie were made today, they probably, it probably, they probably would have changed the part you just mentioned of, you know, him kind of being menacing and kidnapping her. I think I feel like that to, to, to modern views that might, uh, that might come across a different way now and would probably be changed. Uh, but in terms of things that would change, I, other than that, I can't really think of anything. I feel like, uh, you know, the, the movie's pretty, uh, pretty tight as it is and doesn't, uh, doesn't, required much
3: correction maybe. interesting so nothing in this one yeah. I have a feeling I'll I know don't how you know so, okay oh, Rick what about you
0: so I wouldn't change much uh, but if I had to pick one thing I would say that I like the fact that the two characters do form a bond Madeline Stowe's character Bruce Willis's character but I wouldn't have gone so far as to have them kiss for example like so they do sort of like form a romance. And I would have like you could have implied that maybe she is for some reason attracted to him and vice versa, but not really push it as far as they pushed it. I think that's about it.
3: I, I like that one. And I'm completely on board with it. There was absolutely no reason for that. And I actually in a movie like this, it would have been better just being implied. And the fact that she was kind of going along with him at the end, it's almost like they are two crazy kids running off. Uh, it, was like, it had a sort of a Bonnie and Clyde-ish, uh, you know, feel to it as they're about to embark on this thing, which, of course, gets stopped before, they, you know, dead in their tracks before they could actually do it. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think they ever really needed to kiss. Uh, that could have come later on down the line that we don't need to see. All right. So I am going to go for a massive one here, guys. <laughs> mm. I am going to recast uh, Brad Pitt's character. Wow. That's, what I'm gonna do. that's what i would change i do not think looking back on it rewatching this now i i do not think that brad pitt's performance hits the notes that this movie requires i think he's he's doing things that are a little too mannered and they're very distracting um and i can get like i at the time i remember watching it and liking it because it was so different but now when i'm just watching it as a movie and i've already understand the movie and i just want to to be you know uh, absorbed into the story and the filmmaking uh brad pitt's performance for me is a major distraction every scene he's in it it was it took me completely out of the movie so that that's the it's a major change but that is that is the one thing that i would do
5: would you put it in his place
3: oh i don't know uh god who could play crazy but but play it kind of subtly bill paxton <laughs> <laughs> He's too old at that point. Yeah, that'd be Field very yeah. You know what? I think had he had hired uh, Michael Palin, I think possibly could have done it, and with just a little more wit, I think. If he just rest. done
5: a, a separate version of the movie with all many Python people, <laughs> like one of them I, in drag is the metal stuck Stucker, that that might be funny.
3: I think Palin could have subdued his expressions a little bit, and while he still would have had that goofiness that clearly Gillian wanted out of the character, he would have never let Pitt do that. Uh, Because that was almost like a cartoon. He was Woody Woodpecker. I think Palin could have subdued it just a bit more and possibly had some of those lines come off just slightly wittier.
5: If they'd done it like the Muppets where they just were in other movies. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, So when it came out, I remember everyone was complaining about his performance and then he got nominated for an Academy Award, which was mind-blowing. I get it and I'm not going to disagree. It doesn't really bug me, but... If you, because here's the thing, when you're watching Twelve Monkeys, there is a lot of characters who are a little over the top. Can I just remind you of the scene in which they go to um, a rundown motel and this pimp walks in, <laughs> kicks down the door, pulls out a knife, and it, all of a sudden it's like you're watching a Jack Hill 1970s black exploitation film starring Pam Greer. That was so bizarre. Like, I, I, I totally forgot about that scene. And when I watched the movie again this week, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't remember this.
3: <laughs> I know. Now, I, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a there's a time and a place for quirky characters. And Gilliam's movies have a lot of them. But they're in very short doses, right? And Pitt is a character that we have to keep returning to. And so he needs to be toned down just a little bit more. I can't quite, because everybody else isn't on the same wavelength as him. Again, Madeline Stowe is playing this straight, right? Right. She's playing it absolutely straight. And Willis is kind of going crazy. And he's got some some ticks. So that's fine. They can bounce each other out. But there's nobody to bounce out hit's character and he's off the charts. Like he's, he, he is the loony. Like they would have never let him out of that hospital. ever <laughs> The way that he behaves. I can't see, I don't care how rich his dad is. You're not letting that guy back into the public.
0: <laughs> and and what is so funny is he actually uh, met with a, a bunch of psychiatrists to try to study uh, their patients and try to get a, an idea of how a mental patient would act. And also the director took away his cigarettes because it would make him more like irritated and 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 whatever like he would just like start twitching and he would have this bug-eyed look and so he wouldn't allow him to smoke on set so they would be on set for like 12, 12 hours or whatever and he couldn't have a cigarette so he just you know but it's just so weird because it it's like you're right he's so over the top that he's like he's trying to steal every scene but for the wrong reasons like it's actually hurting the film you know so it's like it's like he's thinking too much about him and his performance so but The thing is, it doesn't bug me, but I I know a lot of people, a lot of people complain about Brad Pitt's performance.
3: Yeah, it doesn't ruin the movie for me or anything, but it is the one big thing that I would change that I think would make it an even more powerful movie, because I think you could turn that character into something other than a joke. And what I think Pitt ended up doing was just making him into comic relief. I think people just sort of giggle at that character because he's so he's so weird. And, I mean, all of his little tics. Now, he's he is funny, genuinely funny. I like when he's yelling at people to get out of his chair. Um, it's just that I never once believed that he would ever be released from a mental institution because he's out there. It's definitely a long ways away from One flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Like, he's doing the the, the parody of that.
5: I don't know. I'm sure it's his rich dad pulled strings. That's uh,
3: <laughs> had to pull a lot of probably strings. the implication, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that. That's the one big thing. Otherwise, all the little things I kind of like. I like the little quirks of Terry Gilliam movies, and even the little flaws. I I would keep uh, you know all of them in because they're kind of the that's sort of the richness of a of a Gilliam movie. All right, but so that gets to our next question, Stephen. Who do you think is the MVP, most valuable player on uh, for Twelve Monkeys? uh mvp um i'm
5: gonna go with Willis. i think this is you know, one of one of his better performances so i'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with Willis.
3: yeah it's a solid choice i don't it'd be hard yeah. to argue against that one for sure uh his performance is it, it's definitely key to everything uh you have to be able to believe it and you have to be able to believe the madness and he sells it really well he he oh. has a lot of range in this movie mm. what about you rick
0: Well, this is tough because I I hate to say the director week after week. Unlike Brazil, he didn't write the script. He relied heavily on his team to create these amazing sets. You have Robert Pratt, who's an incredible cinematographer, who lit up the sets and just gave it a beautiful look. So there's a lot of talented people who worked on this movie. I do really like Madeline Stowe, but I don't think she's a, a big enough character or has a big enough presence for me to call her v, uh, the VIP um or sorry the MVP. Like I wanted to say Bruce Willis because he's so good in this movie and I really think that Especially with this kind of movie, you need to cast the right person in the role. Because if you have the wrong person, right? Like, imagine if they flipped it and Brad Pitt was the main character. Um, No matter how good your set design is, no matter how good your lighting is, no matter how good the script is, it can all fall apart. But I'm going to credit the director this week because at the end of the day... He made the choice to cast Bruce Willis, and he specifically told Bruce Willis what he wanted him to do and what he didn't want him to do. And he gave him a long list of things that he would normally do in previous films that, you know, was just a typical Bruce Willis thing, right? It's part of his persona. And he made sure that he didn't do it. So the Bruce Willis that you see in 12 Monkeys is so different from the Bruce Willis you see in Die Hard and all of the other films he made prior. So, you know, that plus the fact that it's, it's a very complicated movie to, to make because, once again, it's about time travel, and as we all know, the director is the person in charge. He's the captain of the ship, and he has so many things to oversee and so many people to lead, and I, I have to give it to him this week. I don't know if I gave him the MVP for Brazil, but I'm going to give it to him for 12 Monkeys.
3: Yeah, I, I, uh, it's funny because I also thought about Madeline Stowe as a possible MVP because I think she is the rug that ties the room together, in many <laughs> ways. Um, she he is the she's the one playing it straight and is the most grounded and is the one that we as an audience can attach ourselves to, even though Bruce Willis is the protagonist. Um, and she she knocks it out of the park. I think I, I think this is a very underrated performance for her uh, that she doesn't that doesn't get talked about as much when talking about this movie. But yeah. I got to give the MVP to David and Janet Peoples because I actually do think that it would have been hard to screw up this screenplay because it is structured so well. And that ending is a knockout. I mean, it's hard to, to, to screw that one up. The way that they sort of weave these flashbacks in and have them change, uh, the way that they have all the little things that you were talking about that pay off later on the the answering machine message uh, the, and the spray paint on the wall. All these little things, even the animals uh, at the beginning, when you've got the lion standing on top of the library or whatever that building was—I don't remember if it was library or not—but um, you know how the animals were had were ruling the earth, and that was kind of the goal of the twelve monkeys was to to let the animals out of their cages and, and go back to that kind of society, and that was also David Morse's character, uh, his his sort of goal. Uh, I think all these little things combined to make a movie that would have been. That any competent director, I think, could have pulled off. And maybe it wouldn't have been as good, but I think it still would have worked. Uh, in Even with different actors, I think it still would have worked. So I'm giving it to the, the peoples. All right, so does this movie pass the Howard Hawks test? Of course, the Howard Hawks test is a movie, for a movie to be a great movie, it has to have three great scenes and no bad ones. So Stephen, what do you think? Does 12 Monkeys have... At least three great scenes and no bad ones.
5: I think it does. Yeah, I can't really think of any scenes that I would describe as uh, crossing the line into bad. And yeah, it has at least three great scenes. So yeah, I'd say it does.
3: Okay, Rick, what about you? Can you can you spot a bad one? And are enough three great scenes? Well, first of all, Stephen, like, what would you consider like three the three greatest scenes in this?
5: Uh, I'll go with uh, like I said the mental the mental hospital scene, the ending, and. I guess when they're watching Vertigo?
3: Yeah, that was... Yeah,
5: I'd listen to those there.
3: Rick, what about you?
5: All three
0: scenes Stephen mentioned, the scenes that we mentioned prior, like when they're driving in a car listening to pop music, I do think it passes the test despite the scene with the pimp Because I don't think that's a bad scene. I just think it's laugh out loud, funny, and just outrageous. And it's just so weird to be in the movie. But it's not a bad scene. Like, it might feel out of place, but it still works. So I don't think there's a bad scene in the film. And I think it has, if not four, maybe five great scenes. So I'm going to have to say yes.
3: I'm close on this one. There's only one scene that I would possibly considered bad although it's more like it's just mediocre and that's the one where Pitt is uh talking to his 12 monkeys crew and they're they're, they're getting ready to plan out what they're about to do and they're i, I understand that it's trying to build some suspense that maybe they're going to release the virus but it's really the only time that we see him away from bruce willis and i don't think that he works as a character Away from Bruce, Bruce Willis, like we didn't need to cut away from him, and their interactions are also just so awkward and kind of unbelievable as far as that stuff goes. Uh, the, you know, his whole crew—I'm not really sure why they'd be following him. He seems like a maniac, not somebody that inspires loyalty whatsoever. Uh, so these guys seem more scared of him than anything else, and yet I'm not sure why they all showed up. Uh, for me that's the closest it comes to a bad scene. So I, uh, but is it,
0: I is it
5: bad? Is it bad? bad? You know, I know
3: sure. i might be mediocre. <laughs> so I guess I can't say that it, you know, it does pass the Howard Hawks test. Then,
5: Well, again, so, I think so it's because no, he has money. It's like the other question. Like it's, it's because it, they know he has money and they know he has power and they know that he has access to, you know, if not the lab, then, you know, keys to things and that sort of stuff. I mean, I think that's uh yeah, It's kind of like why the SLA wanted Petty Hurst. It's to say that he brings them notoriety, the fact that he's gone.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I wish they had done a little more to establish that Um Right, just just a little bit um because and because those characters are so thinly drawn as to why they would be following him why he would inspire any sort of loyalty whatsoever but um but yeah you can lo- you could definitely logic it out i mean it does make sense of course i yeah. just wish that as in the movie it just doesn't hit home and i wish right. that that was more of the case um all right so does it stand the, t- the test of time
5: i think if they're watching after 25 years now there's a good chance they'll continue to there's not really any good reason uh not to. I mean, there's no one in the cast who's been disgraced over time, which is uh, more than I can say for a lot of movies from this time period. Um, although Gilliam did give an interview with last year where he said some pretty gross stuff, but um, I won't hold that against his old work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, that, I mean, I think the, the ideas of the movie still are there's nothing there that really doesn't age well, or and of course now that there's actually a pandemic, it kind of uh, is uh, bringing people back to this movie, I
3: think. So, yeah, and I think one of the things with Gill—we talked about this during Brazil—is that one of the yeah. things with Gilliam is you—you know—you might loathe the man, but uh, but his movies, I—they I, do kind of like there. There is a, a timelessness to them.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, because he's such a—he <laughs> doesn't work in reality, really. Even though this is the closest one to reality that he's that he that I can remember him really working in, uh, you know, all outside the, you know, the Fisher King and things like that. But mm. it, it, I think that this is, there's no reason why this movie can't go on forever because it doesn't, it's never going to feel dated. It's not like he, he wallows in 1990s, you know, uh, yeah. ish stuff. He, he's not playing Nirvana on the radio or anything like that. And making yeah. sure that you understand that everybody's <laughs> not wearing flannel shirts and whatever. He's not, he's not going full bore into that. He's not showing current day, you know, Bill Clinton's not on the television set talking about things, and he—he uh, he, it doesn't—it's kind of incidental that it's the 1990s. It could be some other world 1990s for all we know, and it, it doesn't really matter what what era it was set. And nobody's even his 1990s isn't emblematic of the 1990s, and his future right. world is just some part of his imagination that that could be it doesn't have to be. I, I can't remember exactly what the year was uh, in the future, but but it could be. 20, thirty-five, and it could easily be twenty-three, thirty-five. It could be twenty-five, yeah. thirty-five, and it's just one of those future worlds that could that could be anytime, anywhere. Uh, so it kind of works. And I, and I always think that visually, how a movie looks is is going to determine whether or not it lasts. In many yeah. cases, even more so than the writing or the actors, it's how it looks. And Gilliam movies just they, they look they have their own weird look that just doesn't uh, yeah. doesn't bog down. So yeah. I think it'll stand.
5: Have you guys ever seen the 12 Monkeys TV show? No, I haven't. I've, heard still, I've never watched it. No, I don't know. I heard varying things about how good it was, but I figured, you know, I don't need to watch four seasons of that. It sounds like it's a pretty similar story. I don't know if it, uh, I mean, Gilliam had nothing to do with it. And I don't think anyone else involved with the movie had anything to do with it either. So, but. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I'm just going to say yes. The answer is yes. If, I mean, look, it's more relevant today than ever before because we can all relate to the fear of a pandemic, right? Like like we're all afraid of getting sick and it can happen and it's happening, but also mo- more so because of the ending. And that is why this movie continues to find an audience because my nephew messaged me uh two weeks ago it was before we even decided to uh to to record this podcast this week and he's like have you watched a movie 12 monkeys i was like yeah he's like it's amazing right and like so it's like i, I think he found it on netflix i'm not sure where but he just randomly watched a movie which was so bizarre Uh, And had no idea what was what it was about. He just saw Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis's name. He's like, I'm going to watch this movie. And it is the type of movie that, again, it finds a new audience. And I think you know, just the fact that it passes the Howard Hawks test, to me, the answer is right there. Then yes, it stands the test of time.
3: Yeah, it sounds like it. it, I think people will be watching this easily 25 years from now if if it's still around. Um, Yeah, but with that, I think. we should probably wrap things up uh steven where can people find you online
5: uh you can find me on twitter at steven silver that's steven with a ph um you can go find uh my rotten tomatoes page just look up my name on rotten tomatoes um and yeah i write for various uh local national sites if you look up my name uh, or look at my twitter you'll find it there
3: including Goomba Stomp and definitely check out his movie reviews yes. uh, on our site here. Uh, you can find me of course, online at Sorted of cinema. I don't really tweet all that often. So, <laughs> but if somebody does tweet at me, I will definitely respond. I love to chat movies, um, but yeah, otherwise you can find my writing on Goomba stomp and Rick, where can we find you online?
0: I handled the official Twitter account for Goomba stomp, which is Goomba stomp mag. I'm not really personally on Twitter, but I, I am on Facebook. Uh, the podcast is available on Goomba It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, uh YouTube uh iTunes like I mean it's everywhere right so just like uh go to com and uh look for the podcast and I just want to say uh I'm sorry I'm sick so my voice is like kind of like falling apart and uh thank you Stephen once again for coming oh, on the show thank you for having me uh, Yeah we we missed last week because I was again sick but I really want to record today because uh This is a lot of fun, guys, talking about movies and forgetting about all the problems happening in the world. Um, This is why I love movies. And 12 Monkeys, like I watched a movie twice this week, and it's just such a great escape. And if you haven't watched a movie, I mean, first of all, You're already an hour into the show, so like I don't know what you're still doing here. But (laughs) yeah, if you if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you're a fan of the movie. And I highly recommend that you recommend it to your friends. Let let them know that this is a great movie and they should watch it.
5: Yeah, it is on, I believe, Showtime's on demand channel. I don't know how long it's on there, but that's where it currently is. And I think it's some I think it's if you have the Hulu add on for Showtime or I think it's Hulu then, or maybe it's Amazon, one of those two, um, you can watch it that way as well.
0: So. It's got to be Amazon, because we don't have Hulu in uh, Canada. Be Amazon, yeah. yeah, he and my nephew watched it online, so.
3: Yeah, I mean, I had to rent it. It's possible that it is now on the free streaming thing right now. I had to rent it on Amazon. Um, so <laughs> it's hard to say whether um, it could be, but Canada also gets different movies uh, for free than we do. That's true. Um, yeah, well, with that, we should probably wrap things up, but we will be back next week. We'll see you then.
1: James Cole,
3: clear from quarantine.
4: Thank you. You two wait outside.
3: He's got a history, doctor. Violence, antisocial six, repeated violations of the permanent emergency code. Insolence, defiance, disregard of authority, doing 25 to life. I don't think he's going to hurt us. You aren't going to hurt us, are you, Mr. Cole? Yes, sir.
4: Why don't you sit down, Mr. Cole? We appreciate your volunteering. You're a very good observer, Cole.
2: Thank you. We have a very advanced
1: program, something very different.
4: An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably.
3: And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth.
4: We want tough-minded people. Strong mentally. We've had some misfortunes with unstable types.
0: For a man in your position, an opportunity.
1: Not Not to volunteer volunteer can be a real mistake,
4: mistake. definitely.